What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome to the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Boy, it's good to have you along again this week. We've got some construction going on in the neighborhood here uh, near my office. Hopefully, we don't pick up too much of that on the microphone, but we are back to the third installment in our series, Relationships 101. Uh, We've been building the front porch on the series over the past few weeks as we've talked about our relationship with Jesus, the most important relationship we've had. We've also talked about uh, our relationship with friends and being a friend and the, the qualities that make for exceptional friendships. In doing so, one of the illustrations we've used in uh, our relationship, or one of the relations, uh, one of the uh, illustrations we've used is our relationship with other drivers on the roadway. Even though we don't know all of the other drivers, we have a relationship with everybody else on the road in that we are all following the same road rules. And I think even more importantly, we're all subject to the consequences of not following those rules. The rules are not there just to give us something to do or to control us, but to make sure the motorway functions as it should as we travel. And as we drive per the traffic laws, we all get to enjoy being able to travel quickly and comfortably as long as we share the same rules. On the other hand, if drivers decide they're going to toss all the rules out the window and say, I don't want to follow these rules anymore and I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, If someone starts driving the wrong way on the on-ramp and ignoring the signs and signals and whatnot, it is not going to go well. If we get rid of the boundaries for the relationships on the roadway, the entire traffic system will break down and pretty much become a dumpster fire. No one's going to get anywhere and uh, traffic's going to be worse than it already is. And that is how things work with the commands and moral precepts we find in Scripture. They're boundaries within which relationships function in the best way possible. It doesn't mean that relationships can't function outside of those boundaries, and it doesn't mean the relationships that you know stick to those boundaries are going to be perfect, but it is the best way possible. If we choose to transgress the boundaries and not obey and respect those boundaries, things are probably not going to go as well as they could. Sometimes we may think someone is being punished by God when it may really be more the case that someone is just simply experiencing the consequences of getting outside the boundaries. But to stay within the boundaries and make sure everything operates as intended, it requires something from each of us. It begins with each of us taking personal responsibility for living the commands and moral precepts of Scripture in our own lives lives daily. Faith is more than just an intellectual belief. It's also the courage to humble ourselves and act on what God says is true. That's a big, that's an important part of faith, actually acting on what God says is true. In our series on the whole armor of God, we were in Ephesians chapter six. For the next few weeks, we will back up from that just a little bit to Ephesians chapter five. In the passage we will be looking at, the Bible gives us the boundaries for the relationships within a household. 
And if you are a regular listener, maybe you listen to me in person, uh, you know, heard me on social media, whatever. If you have listened for very long or known me for very long, you know that I don't set out to be controversial. Um, I don't really like controversy. It's not something I consider fun, which is kind of ironic considering how active I am on social media. But we all hear people say, I don't care what other people think. Uh, for me personally, I do care what other people think. I, didn't, I really don't enjoy having people sh- throw shade in my direction. That's just me. But at the same time, my calling to preach God's word must take precedence over my desire to be liked. It has to. I will be able to correctly feel my calling. But what that, I guess you could say, that desire to be liked by other people uh, does do is it helps me dig into God's Word and really study in such a way that I try to make sure that if people are offended, it's not me doing the offending, but Scripture itself, even though inevitably people are going to conflate the two. Between this week and next week, it's likely that someone's going to be offended, someone's uh, going to be upset, and that's just reality. I'm not looking forward to the interactions uh, in the blogosphere and social media this week, but it's a successful outreach, so uh, it's not like I'm not going to do it. Uh, We're talking about marriage and the biblical roles of husbands and wives. Wives this week and husbands next week. Maybe Paul brings up wives first because he wanted to get the hard part out of the way first, and I certainly don't blame him. Men, in general, they don't tend to be as emotional as women. They tend to be more analytical. They're more interested in things than they are in people. And from a preaching standpoint, men are pretty easy to preach to. It's they're, you know, I can beat up on them and they can handle it pretty well. I can talk about men on any given Sunday and and go pretty hard at them. And I can talk about men's sin. I can say, you guys need to control your lustful eyes, your lustful thoughts, your anger, you drink too much. Stop being lazy. Step up, be a man. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. Stop wearing cargo shorts, washing your hair with bar soap, all that stuff. And everyone's mostly okay with that. If we were to make a list of sins men struggle with, we could probably come up with a list uh, fairly quickly flesh it out, be reasonably long. But what if we were to do the same thing for women? What if we were to say, you know, let's make a list of sins that women struggle with. Uh, you know, I one thing, I, I wouldn't come up on, on, I wouldn't do this on a podcast or in person on a Sunday in the pulpit, but I wouldn't be hard on women. And if we were to ask for the sins women struggle with most, the hands probably wouldn't go up very quickly if they went up at all. And the list, well, it wouldn't be near so long as it would be for men. Maybe we're afraid to make women mad or hurt their feelings. And, you know, personally, I don't want to do either one. We talked about friends last week. And I said that pastors are not not experts on friendship. We're not very good at it. I know even less about being a woman and a wife. In talking about husbands, uh, I can read Ephesians 525 that says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And I we hear that at weddings. I probably use it at a wedding myself at some point. And even secular people can aim in that verse. Yes, husbands, love your wives. But when I back up and read the three verses prior, people start clutching their pearls. Everybody loses their mind. Uh, let's read Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we'll expound on all this, so please don't tune me out just yet. Listen to what I have to say about it. A few things to remember. First of all, we want to remember why we have biblical commands and moral precepts. As we've spoken about, they're boundaries that provide and protect good relationships, just like traffic laws. Biblical commands are not intended to oppress people. They're not intended to hurt people. As we've talked about before, love and commands are inseparable. The Pharisees, modern legalistic believers, you know, they try to leverage commands to control people or for personal benefit. And when you do so, that removes the love from the commands. Some progressive Christians toss out the command and say it's all about love. And both are wrong and both pervert the scriptural intent of commands, of biblical morals. This passage is about a household and the best way for that household to operate. And remember, it's in that context. The most important thing to notice about the language of this passage, take note of this and remember it, this passage is couched in the language of the gospel. And I've dealt with this particular issue, uh, passage, context, problem, whatever you want to call it, multiple times in many different contexts with uh, large groups of people, you know, one-on-one. And some people handle it well, some don't. I've had people get very upset about this and even leave the church over it. And I always feel bad when that happens because I feel like, well, I just didn't explain it well enough. I always feel like if I could better explain something, you could see that this is what scripture teaches and that it does matter. And God's way really is the best way. And that's kind of what I'm striving to do. With any biblical command, loving the command are inseparable. That's what Jesus taught us when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God, and the second one's like it. Love your neighbor. He made loving commands inseparable. We must know the command to apply it. We must apply it with love. And we also must use wisdom in the application of the command. Wisdom is very important. So why does this topic trigger people so much? And I think it's two reasons mainly. One is just simple, sinful rebellion, uh, which, you know, that's, yeah, that's a main one. The other one is that they don't understand it because so many have attempted to apply it without love and wisdom. In the last chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter four, Paul said, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And part of what he's saying there is, you know, you apply these things with wisdom, apply scripture with wisdom, apply commands with wisdom. And what is wisdom? Well, wisdom, and I think if you break it down to a, very basic definition. Wisdom is simply the right application of knowledge, taking the knowledge you have and applying it in the right way. There are many things to consider in the right application of knowledge, especially when it comes to commands given in scripture, how, what, when, where, why, what boundaries are being protected by the command. And here's a really tricky one. How does the command apply in the cultural context? Because culture It's a powerful thing. Uh, Some use culture as an excuse to throw out the command. You know, wives submit to your husbands and they use the culture, say, oh, that was for the culture of the day. The thing is, is the command takes precedence over the culture. 
but culture is still a consideration in the application of a command. For instance, with this particular passage, people often say, well, that was just for the culture of the day in which it was written. But if that's the case, does it also apply to the rest of the context? And, you know, husbands love your wives. They're right there together. Was that only for the culture of the day? Of course, the passage also talks about slaves and masters, which is another thing we'll address. Uh, I believe there's an applicable spot for that, but we don't have slaves and masters uh, in modern Western culture. So it's not quite the same, but what we do have is marriage. That hasn't changed. There are several places in scripture that reference marriage, the topic of marriage, how a household runs, how things are set in order according to God's will. In another context regarding gender roles, Paul references Adam and Eve, and in doing so, he transcends time. There's more application here than just the culture in which it was written. At the same time, the culture does matter. And I think what leads to much of the friction on this particular topic is when people conflate traditional culture with the biblical command, which is what the Pharisees did. It's what modern-day legalists do. Biblical submission is a thing, but it isn't gauged by how you divide up household chores in your home. It isn't gauged by who handles the finances or even who makes all the decisions for that matter. That's cultural, not biblical, but that's what many people think of when we read wives submit to your own husbands. Every group has a leader. Every team has a captain. Every church has a pastor. It should be, at least hopefully has one, uh, but every team has a captain. And everyone else follows the lead of the team captain. We understand that. We, we have no problem with that. We can watch a sporting event on TV. There's a team captain. Nobody gives it a second thought. And someone has to be responsible for what happens. Somebody has to be responsible for the decisions made. Someone ultimately has to stand up and be counted for the good, the bad, and the otherwise. The Bible says that a household and a marriage covenant, that's the husband. Well, let's break this down and see what we're talking about. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we understand the terms wives and husbands. In a biblical marriage, a husband and wife enter into a marriage covenant. There are three persons in that marriage covenant, a husband, a wife, and God. They're joined together when they enter into the marriage covenant. They're joined in such a way that the Bible says they become one flesh. And Paul kind of touches on that um, when he talks about husbands a little bit and loving their wives and love them like they love their own flesh. And in a marriage covenant, two individuals become one whole. They're not really two separate people anymore. They're joined together in a covenant. And when I do, I've, I've done several wedding ceremonies. One of the things I do is that when people are married, I ask them to face each other and ask them to join hands. And they form a circle when they do that. And that is kind of an illustration of their covenant together. And what that means is that there's that circle in between them where their hands are joined, there's that space in between them, and it's just between them and God. And nothing and no one else enters into that covenant, not physically, not emotionally, not financially, not your parents, not your job, not your friends, nothing and no one except God, not even your 
children are part of your marriage covenant. People might not want to argue about that with me and kids are more important. Nope, your marriage covenant is more important than your kids because your family is built on your marriage covenant. Together in a covenant with God, a married couple is one whole and nothing else gets to be part of that, full stop. And in my marriage, uh, my wife and I, we're a team. We've always viewed our marriage that way. We work together. Now, the real sticky word here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, is submit. When the biblical term submit comes up against our sinful flesh, it's, it's abrasive. We don't necessarily like it. And as you'll see as we explore this more, everyone is submitting to someone. And there's mutual submission, submission to the Lord. Verse 21 says, all believers are submitting to each other in the fear of God. So whether you're a man, woman, or child, if you don't like the term submit, we're going to need to find a way to work through that, or you're really going to struggle with this. You're going to struggle to live in obedience to Christ because everybody has to submit in some way. Now, this verse, uh, if you're a woman, it may be the case that you struggle with the concept of this verse because you were in a bad relationship. I've seen so many women, very, very unfortunately, come out of situations of domestic abuse or idiot husbands who were, you know, didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And because you were in a bad relationship or haven't seen a man live out his biblical role in the marriage covenant, um, you know, maybe a a husband didn't honor that. that. That makes things a thousand times more difficult. You're right. You know, they were wrong. And if a man is not submitting himself to God's call on his life and the marriage covenant, it makes things extremely difficult. But at the same time, could it be the case that a woman doing the same would have the same effect, make things extremely difficult? The word submission or submit carries a meaning of placing things in a certain order. In particular, the meaning here is wives, you place yourself in this position. Uh, Paul writes, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Regarding culture, this passage at the time it was written would have been very controversial because, see, this is a calling from God. And the culture of the day would have seen this as, well, that concept is very strange. A woman having any kind of individual calling from God unique to her would be completely unheard of. The Oxford Dictionary gives one definition of submission as a consent to undergo. A wife makes the decision. She gives consent to her husband to lead the household, and then she supports him in that. If it's, it's something you do of your own will, a decision you make. You're not pressed into it. It's something you decide to do. No one can force you to do that any more than someone can force me to submit to God's call on my life to be a pastor. I could walk away. Uh, it may not go well if I did, and I certainly don't want to. I believe this is what God has called me to do, but I could walk away. Mutual submission, the equal value between men, women, children, parents, masters, slaves, different races was a new thing and very countercultural at the time. Equal value and mutual submission among believers was 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 completely countercultural, and and through this passage, Paul is saying that even slaves and masters have equal value, but there's a structure in relationship that is the best way to navigate life in a broken world, and that's really kind of the point we're getting at here. 
In our individualistic, hyper-independent culture, the idea of submission of any kind is very countercultural, and and we don't want to do it. And people say, oh, you're going to submit, that's weak. And, you know, culture's affected me. I've caused more friction than I've needed to sometimes because I wasn't willing to give way or submit to someone or something when I should have. Our culture hears the word submit and sees it as a bad thing and thinks doing so is a sign of weakness. But remember this, this passage is couched in the language of the gospel. The very gospel message, the message of the cross, is a message of submission. Jesus submitted himself to the will of his Father. He submitted himself to the torture and death on the cross. And through his perfect submission, God offers us salvation. Now, was Jesus weak in doing that? No, of course not. That's a rhetorical question. But submission is biblical and it's powerful. And the marriage covenant itself is a call to sacrifice. Uh, Serving in submission to leadership and serving in leadership are both calls to sacrifice. People, I don't know, it's very trendy today for people to associate leadership with only power. And that's just not true. People think they sit around their office with their feet up if they have any kind of power, but that's just not what you do. Biblical leadership is submission to serving those in our care. And I've been serving in a position of leadership in church for quite a while now, and it, it's it's not about power. It's it's sacrifice. It's not easy. And as a church leader, I take on the burden of responsibility of caring for the church and the consequences of decisions made and uh, the, the face of the church, so to speak, the buck stops here guy. And that's what pastors do in a church. That's what husbands do in a home. Now, here's another misapplication of a biblical mandate that causes unnecessary friction. This, brace, this passage is abrasive enough without uh, conflating culture with the command. And we certainly don't want poor cultural application. So we're not only talking about the command, but we're talking about removing the cultural trappings that have been added to this over time. And in our passage, Paul writes, wives, submit to your own husbands. And we are all, we're, we're all called to submit ourselves to something biblically. The Lord, obviously, governing authorities, church leadership, each other. I've seen a lot of children and parents. And I've seen a lot of Christians struggle with, especially with uh, governing authorities. Um, that's, that's a big one. But Paul writes, wives to your own husbands. Submit to your own husbands. Notice it doesn't say women to men. Although, uh, you know, we do that in some sense in mutual submission among believers in general. It doesn't apply across the board um, between men and women. It's not a workplace thing. It's not a secular thing. It's not an out in the world thing, uh, whatever. But when we when people hear this, that's often what they think. Uh, you know, I can read Ephesians 5.22, uh, wives submit to your own husbands, and someone will say something to me like, you misogynistic pig, you think women shouldn't vote. And I'm like, that's not what I said. How do you, what kind of mental gymnastics do you have to do to get from here to there? That is not what I said. But outside of mutual submission among the fellowship of believers that we all do equally, no, I don't want my wife to feel like she must ever submit to any man anywhere, and I would really take issue with someone who tried to say otherwise. I'd get very defensive about it and probably get pretty offensive. Uh, but within our marriage covenant that no one else can access, in my marriage, I am the buck stops here guy. 
and Ephesians 5.22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, that last part of verse 25 says, as to the Lord. And this could fall under another one of those misapplications. And I think um, it has been misapplied that way at times. And this isn't a comparison of the husband and Jesus. Um, It's not submit yourself to your husband because he's like Jesus. Every wife ever knows that's not true. It's not a supremacy statement. It's the context for a good relationship. That's really what it is. It's not submitting to the husband as Lord, but you're honoring the Lord and giving way to the husband's leadership. And I don't want to get into next week too much, but if a husband's doing what he should be, following Jesus the way he should be, I think his wife will find that following his leadership is easy to do. It will be a natural progression that... It's easy. She'll barely have to work at it. If he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, it's not going to be a difficult thing. You see, all this stuff we hear about, you know, I don't know, misogyny and and power and all this garbage that's constantly being thrown around in culture. Satan wants to pit men and women against each other. He really does. He knows if if he can divide men and women, he can do a lot of damage. But the reality is we're a team. And the reason... Uh, that a strong marriage is a wonderful thing is because through it, kids see representations of the different attributes of God. Uh, You know, they learn about love and mercy and grace, and they also learn about judgment and things like that. They learn about the gospel. It's the foundation upon which church and society are built, a strong marriage. And Satan wants to destroy that. And that's just the way it is. And I remember... My grandmother, uh, she's one of the most strong-willed and successful women I've ever known. Probably, well, she is the most successful woman I've known personally, I suppose. Or, yeah, she's very strong-willed, and she's hyper-disagreeable. And I remember one time my grandmother and my wife, Christine, got crossways with a contractor, and they uh, kind of teamed up against this guy. And, you know, I I wouldn't say he didn't have it coming, but he certainly didn't know what was coming. Um, they eventually got him sorted out. But my grandmother, she was in a publication called Who's Who in American Women. She helped run multiple political campaigns and put some solid politicians in office. She met uh, President George Bush Sr. personally. Her picture was in a national newspaper with him. And I've mentioned before that I, I grew up on a dairy farm. My grandmother was the first woman chairman of the National Dairy Board in the U.S. And in the 80s, she was, you know, instrumental. And while I'd like to think she was instrumental in in people in the general public thinking milk is good for you and it's good for your teeth and bones and all that stuff. And she's still alive. I call her often and we chat. And um, she was also very instrumental in um, my being in ministry. She supported my family and myself in many different ways over the years. Um, she's done a lot for us. And my granddad, he's hes dead now, but he was more the strong, silent type. More kept to himself, kept his head down, worked hard. He worked so hard, well into his 80s. He was up before the sun, worked till after it went down. And he spent his whole life just kind of grinding it out in the dirt, um, milking cows, farming, doing all those kinds of things. Salt of the earth kind of guy. He uh, looked like he had permanent dirt in his pores. And some of his last words were, I'm saved, I'll be fine, which he he didn't say a whole lot, didn't speak a whole lot. Um, 
kind of difficult to talk to on the phone, but I, I was very blessed to grow up on the farm with both of my grandparents. I was the first grandchild. And, and so, I mean, I've, yeah, I've had my grandmother my whole life and I'm into my 50s now, which is pretty amazing, but I've always had a special relationship with them. And I'm here talking now in part because of them. And I learned a lot by watching. And my grandmother, as political and strong-willed and as disagreeable as she was in their marriage covenant, she gave way to my grandfather's leadership. And my grandfather, he was not really a guy who was naturally inclined to that position, but they made decisions together. They went through a lot together. And I remember she always ran things by him, could be in some big discussion, something going on, and she would... Um, yeah, lean over and chat to him about whatever's happened, sought his input, even his guidance. And they would act on that. And that's an example of what Ephesians 5.22 might look like in real time. They always practiced scripture. My grandfather would even let uh, the land rest every senior years like they did in the Old Testament. And God blessed him in many ways. Lots of grandkids, you know, successful life, career. And unfortunately, our pride often makes a mess of what could be such a great blessing. Submission in Ephesians 5.22 is not about superiority or inferiority. It's about mutual love and respect between a husband and a wife. And they submit to the Lord together. It's about saying, I'm going to honor and support and respect my husband's role in our marriage. And respect is crucial in any relationship, including marriage. And as we finish up, I'll wrap this up, but I'm going to give you a few practical things you can do in your marriage that, um, yeah, might help you out. You can take some notes if you want and maybe write them down. But what is show respect? Show respect to your husband's opinions, respect his decisions, respect the role God has made him accountable for. Men, respect is very, very important to men. Uh, men women want to be loved and men want to be respected. Um but respect doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but it does mean valuing and treating his perspective with honor and respect. And here's one that can solve so many marriage problems. And a lack of this is the source of many marriage problems. Communicate openly and honestly in both directions, husband to wife, wife to husband. Do not lie Always tell the truth. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Keep the hard stuff private. There's no need to air out your laundry in public. Like, never put each other down in front of people who are not part of your marriage covenant. Ladies, if you're part of a group of friends who get together to complain about their husbands and put them down, you should rethink your friend group. Don't let anyone break up your team. And... In regards to communication, don't say, if you love me, you would know. Men are not mind readers. We have no idea what you're thinking. My wife, we've done um, a fair bit of premarital courses and counseling with people, and my wife likes to make this silly joke that when God made Eve and took Adam's rib to do so, that was the mind-reading rib, and that's why men can't read lines anymore. But share your thoughts, concerns, wants, and needs respectfully and lovingly tell the truth and be specific be specific as possible uh, husbands be open 
to hearing it. Something my wife and I do that has been helpful for us is if we have something that we know isn't going to be easy for the other one to hear, we say, I have something to say that's not going to be easy to hear. Are you okay with that? If we say yes, then we tell each other. If we say no, I just don't have the the patience to hear it right now. We let it go for later. We just leave it for later. Seek unity in shared decision-making. I, I bounce things off my wife continually. Uh, she's my sounding board. If it's not something confidential, she's probably helping me out with it. She's actually helping me out with a bunch of things today. We've got a funeral to take care of tomorrow, and she's busy working on that. Remember, marriage is a team effort. Collaborate with your husband. You know, and even if you are someone who, like, I'm totally okay with submission. I have no problem with it. I don't want to deal with anything anyway, and I'm just going to let him make all the decisions. That's that's not really right either. Um, work with your husband. Your marriage needs your input. Make decisions. Find solutions that honor both your perspectives and align with the values that you share. And lift up your husband in your marriage to God in prayer. Uh, seek his wisdom, his strength for your marriage, and bring together as a couple is very powerful. I can't remember what the statistics are exactly, but among married couples who pray together, the divorce rate drops to almost zero. The gospel language Paul uses in this passage reminds us that sacrificial love and selflessness are foundational parts of Christian marriage for both husbands and wives. That includes patience and care. It includes grace and mercy. And Jesus is the perfect example of those things things. And here's something else to remember in regards to, you know, the structure of the household. And this is something to remember in marriage and in all things as a Christian. We have perfect hope in Jesus Christ. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have something very special. You live in the knowledge that through his shed blood and his finished work on the cross comes the gift of eternal life, eternity with Jesus in heaven. And the commands and moral precepts of Scripture, they give us a roadmap for navigating a lost and broken world in the best way possible. But this lost and broken world is not our home. Don't forget that. Remember that. This world, it's not forever. The things we are talking about throughout this series that provide good, safe boundaries for relationships, they, they help us navigate a sinful world. But if we belong to Jesus and in eternity, the struggles and hardships of this world, they won't exist anymore. They just won't be here. They'll be a thing of the past. And that's something we can all look forward to. And I hope to meet you there. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful.